Javier, I would also like to hear your view on this. Uh, how do we differentiate the Indo-Pacific model of development from the Chinese model and also the risk of uh, debts and deficits that um, already some states are facing and how can the Indo-Pacific bypass that? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Rayali. I'll, I'll, I'll address the question uh, in, a wider, in a wider sense in how we view our cooperation maybe with the, with the Indo-Pacific and, and I think the, the contrast that it does have with other actors. Uh, let, let, let me first state that uh, the way we view it from Spain uh, uh, has a lot to do with our uh, membership of the European Union. And we, we believe that Europe has a, it's an important economic and, and partner within the, uh, within the Pacific region, but it does also have to play a political role in the region. And in that sense, we think Europe has to be relevant in the Indo-Pacific. We as Spain, we think we, we are a relevant country within the European Union. We are one of the bigger countries in the EU. We have a, a, a key role in shaping EU policies. So we, we want to influence and defend our interests and our principles towards the Indo-Pacific through the European Union policies too, basically. Uh, as you know, the European Union adopted an Indo-Pacific strategy last year. And we are currently in the implementation process. And, and in that sense, what we are doing nationally is a, exactly mapping, uh, having a mapping process, seeing what are our strengths and our interests in the development of, the, of that implementation of that Indo-Pacific strategy, and, and seeing how can we be more useful. Uh, what are our, our objectives, in that sense, uh, within this European framework? Okay, we, we think that uh, economic integration and reinforcing the links of Europe with the area are key. We need to uh, increase the uh, diversification and resilience of our economic models. And in that sense, reinforcing uh, economic agreements that will give bigger uh, certainty to investors and, and, and trading partners is very important. Two days ago, uh, President von der Leyen announced a trade and technology council that will be established with India. We think it's a very, a step, a very good step in the right direction. Uh, again, we need to align financing with these objectives. So when we are mapping, when we are implementing the, uh, the, the strategy, we need to accompany with the financing instruments. We have the global gateway in the European Union. We need also to incentivize and work with, uh, with uh, private finance. In the end, Indo-Pacific is a very diverse uh, environment. And by the way, in the Indo-Pacific strategy, it includes it includes Eastern African countries. So at, at least that I can I can confirm that. Um, so we need to work with an array of different instruments. And in that case, maybe the last the last thing I wanted to to, to underline, and it connects very much with what Philippe was mentioning before, has to do with uh, what we think the cooperation can be in many of the areas that, that has been. My I personally have uh, I I have spent quite a bit time of my career in the European Union and in the OECD. What do countries in the European Union and the OECD do all the time? Well, we compare, we have dialogues, we share experiences, we do peer learning, we learn from each other. We think that many of the challenges that the Indo-Pacific is facing right now are challenges that we ha are facing and have been facing too for quite some time. And in, some and in that sense, the dialogues are important. I just finished with a couple of national examples. Uh, since we have here the Honorable Minister of Tourism. Spain, Spain, ha, Spain has over 80, before the pandemic, we had over 80 million international tourists every year. 
we are one of the top leaders in the world. And we have a very important infrastructure and, very, and, and a lot of public knowledge in that sector, for example. It would be interesting to share experiences. We have been, I just came from a panel before, regarding the energy transition, a top priority for all, all our countries. About nearly 10 years ago, coal was still an important energy source for electricity in Spain. Nowadays, it's marginal, less than 1%. We are over 50% on renewable energies. And at the same time, we've been able to develop an, uh, an, economic, an economic sector that provides over 100,000 jobs in our country. We think, again, that those are experiences, either both in the public sector and in the private sector, that are very useful to contrast with countries in this region and what we can learn from each other. Thank you. Uh, Uduak, in your remarks, uh, you had talked about how Africa is uh, often left out of this conversation. Now, uh, one of the things that is common to Africa, India, and many of the geographies of the Indo-Pacific is the role of young populations and also emerging technologies. Um, in that, what do you see as um, the role that digital connectivity will play for sustainable development and also for cooperation between the Indo-Pacific countries? You're quite right. Africa is the youngest uh, continent, even though I'm not so young myself. Um, and we believe, what are, what are the projections? I think that by 2030, um, uh, we will account for over 50% of the world's uh, population. And the same is true of Asian um, countries. Um, Asian countries, India, China, um, are fairly sophisticated in their uh, technological advancements. Um, but Africa isn't doing too badly either. Kenya, Rwanda um, are, te uh, are, are tech hubs. Um, the startup economy is also, the, the startup ecosystem is also thriving um, in Africa in the same way that we leapfrogged, um, what was it, uh, there's a, there's a, you know, the landline technology and, and leapfrogged into mobile technology we do see those developments taking place. And so in terms of what partnership and collaboration would look like, even though like Spain, um, you know, a, a country like Kenya is, uh, earns most of its um, uh, income from tourism, we're also known um, for our ecology, wildlife, um, and um, our bio um, biodiversity. Um, in terms of cooperation, we have traditionally cooperated more with Western countries, um, whether it's European countries or the US. We don't see um, enough activity. We've seen very little activity in terms of technological support, um, technologi technological vibrancy between um, Africa and Asia. And there are opportunities for that, whether it's your you know, startup ecosystem here in Bangalore or you know, Rwanda and Africa that has not been exploited to its full potential. Um, in terms of the funds that we see capitalizing um, technolo technological startups, most of the Series A, B, C funding tends to come from America, Silicon Valley. We don't see much of that on the continent, although there is some presence, but none from Africa. The, the reality is that the exchanges typically happen um, geopolitically at the leadership uh, level, and it doesn't necessarily reflect the interests of the common people on the ground. There is room um, for, for more of that. 
Um, and that would take shape easily, even though we have um, mobile telephony from Asia represented in Africa, whether it's Huawei or Bharti Airtel, there isn't enough, it's not as vibrant as it could be. Uh, I'm trying to be diplomatic because I'm surrounded by um, diplomats, but um, there certainly is room for more exchange. All right, um, we'd like to open this up to the audience. Um, yes, sir. Can we have a mic there? We just will. Please do briefly introduce yourself and, uh, and ask your question. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Rajiv Bhatia, I'm a former ambassador. And I work with the Gateway House, a very prestigious think tank based in Mumbai. A special welcome to Mr. Aditya Thakre. We do live uh, in an unequal world. The panel has all the wisdom and monopoly of uh, knowledge. And we are enjoying a three-course meal here. I would especially recommend hosts to provide to the panel a five-course meal very soon. My questions, there are two questions, if you allow, Madam Chair, to uh, Monsieur Philippe Orléans. Uh, you referred to uh, blue economy and specifically fisheries and ports and some other sectors. And we know that France is doing wonderful work in this field. Have you also encountered the challenge that uh, blue economy is discussed much more in conference halls and think tank circles and much less uh, in the corporate offices? So you are a leading figure in this field and do you have some advice to share with us as to how we can convince the business community to become more active uh, that there is money to be made out of oceans as long as you don't destroy them. And my uh, second question is to our sister from Kenya, uh, where I served as High Commissioner a long time back. Uh, please allow me to be frank. Uh, you know, Africa's disinterest in Indo-Pacific is partly due to the definitions uh, originally proposed by the US and uh, Australia when Indo-Pacific ended at India. But it was India and Japan which insisted that Africa must be included in the Indo-Pacific. So my question to you is, is it possible for you to think of creating uh, a uniform platform of those nine countries that you spoke about? Who then can start dialogue with the mechanisms such as Quad? Because you need not worry that this is some way to entrap you into some anti-China platform. Quad is doing a lot of good work. You know, emerging technologies, climate change, blue economy, connectivity, economic cooperation, development cooperation, all this is suitable to you. So do you think uh, we can think in, in those lines? Thank you very much, Madam Chair. Thank you, Ambassador Bhatia. Philippe, would you like to go first? Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ambassador, for your question and for your reference to uh, the five-course meal, which I'm waiting uh, <laughs> to come. Um, I'll, I'll, I think on the blue economy, like on uh, other subjects, one of the critical factors to, to transform an issue which is being discussed in, uh, in diplomatic circle into uh, a reality is to involve practitioners in the sector, which is exactly what we've 
done, if I take the example of our cooperation in this area in Indonesia, where French port administrations have been brought into the picture, a structured dialogue has been put in place with the Indonesian port, and this is, has given a very strong push to the cooperation in, in, in that particular aspect of the blue economy. Uh, so I think this really is, is, um, is, is critical um, and, and is, is a way to, to uh, make sure that uh, cooperation really, really starts. When, when the people most concerned by the subject are, are brought into the, the picture, it's, it's like investment or whatever. Um, I did not respond to um, Unuak's question about whether Africa was, was present at SUFIP or not. Yes, uh, two development banks, uh, TDB from East Africa, which, which uh, is very active in Kenya, and the Development Bank of Southern Africa uh, were, were present at, the, at that forum and um, expressed a, a fair deal of interest in, in continuing this, this engagement. In the, def in the French definition of, of uh, Indo-Pacific, like in the Indian definition, uh, Africa is part of, of, of the region. And like in the European uh, uh, definition, there is no doubt about this. Ambassador, thank you for your uh, question. It's an important one. And, and it re reflects the fragmentation um, on the continent in response to some of the um, international um, conversations that need to take place. And so the way that our conversations would typically be structured is that they would start at the regional level and escalate to the African Union, which I think is, 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 is the process with other uh, regional um, groupings. Um, so Africa itself, um, the AU does not have an Indo-Pacific uh, strategy, but Kenya is developing one, and I believe the same is true of South Africa. And so typically what would happen is that either of the two countries or both would initiate the conversation with their regional economic groupings, whether SADC, COMESA, or the East African community. And that would then be escalated to the um, African Union, and that would then... Um, give us leeway to in, engage with the Quad, which, as you say, um, is quite important. Um, tragically, you know, we haven't seized the opportunity because, of course, you know, for the other, shall we say, 40 or so countries that don't have, um, that don't look towards the Indian Ocean, it hasn't been a priority. Um, it has become a priority, as I said earlier, because of the events in Ukraine, because of the way that you know the um, pandemic has played out, but also because of the ex escalation of transnational crime, you know whether it's trafficking, whether it's illegal migration, um, and so um, my sense is that through the summit that's taking place at the end of uh, next month, where I hear that. Uh, there have been calls from member states to discuss these issues, we will begin to see, um, if not formal um, engagements, certainly informal um, um, conversations taking place with um, you know, forums such as the Quad. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Yes, sir. Can we have a mic there, please? Thank you. My name is Rajesh Shah, and this is uh, addressed to Minister Aditya Thakri. 
you have very ambitious plans for Mumbai. That's one of the great uh, megapolises of the world. Major port city, investment, trade, and the center of all economic, most economic activity of India. So could you like to, would you like to share some of your thoughts on how Mumbai, the development, particularly in relationship to technology or climate change mitigation activities, and this huge population, 25 million and growing, uh, it can play in this region. I think for that, I'd love to invite you to collaborate conversations by ORF in Mumbai. But uh, apart from that, I mean, uh, thank you for bringing this very important topic. What's happened is, uh, over the past few years, we've always seen Mumbai as a center of growth. And not just Mumbai at the moment, you've got the entire MMR region, which is the Mumbai metropolitan region around the city with a couple of more cities growing at a rapid pace. Now, what is very, very important to realize about Maharashtra is it is in a complex way, extremely um, difficult to understand in terms of whether it's really agrarian, whether it's really industrialized, financial, urbanized or not, because almost 52 to 53% of our state is urbanized and we're constantly growing. You've got a couple of more centers. You've got Mumbai, you've got Thane, Navi Mumbai, Aurangabad, Nagpur, a couple of these centers really rapidly growing as industrial centers. Even today for us, if you look at the investments coming in, Pune, of course, you know, is also rapidly growing. Uh, some of these cities have seen them grow from size to size, population to population, but more than that, very importantly, grow in importance for the fintech sector, for the industrial sector, for the marketing world, because you've got multiple agencies coming to Mumbai or Pune, or the whole region between Mumbai and Pune and settle out. Now, what we need to realize is, apart from just having manufacturing industries, apart from a growing service sector, we're trying to attract more and more financial centers to Mumbai and Maharashtra, uh, and the region, like I said, between Mumbai and Pune, because for us, it is crucial that we maintain the status of Maharashtra being the financial capital of India. You've got banks headquartered out of, out of Maharashtra, you've got financial services out of Maharashtra, but for us as government, what we can play as a role is policy making. And that is where we're looking to partner with multiple agencies, multiple think tanks, processes that can actually ease out, you know, not just ease of doing business, but ease of compliance and ease of living. Because when you're looking at a manufacturing hub today, or when you're looking at a fintech hub today, or anything like a data center, you're not just looking at the space given to a particular office complex or a manufacturing plant. You're also looking at how good can your lifestyle be for families that are coming in, or younger couples that are coming in, or people who are you know, interning out there for staying for a longer term. I think in terms of a changing world post-COVID, we're also looking at many more technological changes and advancements coming into our sector. Now, if we are to support this, our sources of energy have to be clean, green, and yet firm. Uh, our infrastructure has to be growing, be it airports, be it seaports, be it inward movement of you know, logistics or humans. I think this is something that we're focusing on in terms of law and order, peace, security, uh, infrastructural growth, education, healthcare. These are some of the points that we are looking at as the government. Apart from that, one of the most beautiful things about Mumbai and Pune especially has been that these two cities have grown not just because of government policies. They've grown because of public-private part partnership. And as, as long as we've got a sense of security in terms of public investment and private investment coming in together, people loving to stay there, we can move forward. And growth in Maharashtra obviously signifies a growth for the country. And growth for the country obviously signifies a larger growth for the region and the Indo-Pacific, looking at the larger role that India is seeking to play at a global level. So that is how we're looking at it. 
apart from the collaborative conversations <laughs> well thanks for plugging that is there anyone else i do actually have a follow up question for you aditya uh, so my question to you is um, in the last two years we have seen that public finance is irreplaceable when it comes to uh, a situation or a crisis like we have seen in the world and maharashtra of course was very badly affected but was also very responsive are there any key lessons in the utilization of public finance that you can share uh, from the last two years i think the last few years have been a learning for all of us you know as a country as um, state as of course the world and in terms of um, first how do we respond to the pandemic because it was something so new for all of us and especially us as a new government just taking in and you know taking over for 5 months and then heading into a pandemic straight uh, what we've been able to do today is again like i said you know for us it's more about public private partnership so even in terms of administration uh, all throughout the times of pandemic especially after the first lockdown we've made trigger points in terms of our oxygen usage our bed utilization in terms of hospitals uh, in terms of vaccination programs and if it all got forbid if there is another pandemic or we see this pandemic rise what do we exactly lock down and what essential activities do we keep going for example the manufacturing sector or the service sector the financial sector because if we close that down the country will collapse so we don't really want to you know hit that and if we have to go on with that and we've got to go on with life and livelihood i think there has to be a balance between both the biggest learning is balance because we've sought to learn in terms of how is technology helping us how is it reducing our travel time and usage of energy time money in terms of travel most of our uh, briefings from different offices across the collectorates that we have or divisions and regions we have are online now we've seen a lot of businesses come onto platforms like zoom webex and microsoft and things like that yes there is a covid fatigue building in there is a, a, a televised fatigue building and we've always got the mask on our arms rather than on the nose nowadays but the biggest learning really is in terms of public finance in terms of private finance if we can actually measure what has to go in uh, measure how we use it and how we can better cooperate with private individuals with corporations with industries with people i think that is where uh, the biggest learning is so when you're investing public finance or private finance what is very important is to keep our ears to the ground and keep getting feedback and keep correcting ourselves at every step i think that is very crucial for us as governments around the world do we have more questions from the audience yes thanks very much uh, my name is evelyn ashton griffiths i'm from the british high commission um the panel made some really interesting points about uh, cross pollination and about kind of exchange and learning from each other and we're really interested uh in the UK government on what we can do to support south south collaboration so we're working a lot in partnership with india to support india as a global development actor and to support india to kind of show the lessons that india has learned and kind of and and promote those and export those overseas um so i'm particularly interested from the views of the panel and i guess different perspectives on the panel on this on uh what are some of the kind of best sectors that we should be targeting when we're looking at south south development how can we make sure that those sectors are demand driven and that you're actually kind of getting the best expertise from different countries and making that exchange work and then a sort of second part to that question is um what useful role can traditional donors uh countries in the global north actually play in facilitating that how can how can they be helpful thanks philip um Maybe uh, I'll start with a few uh, 
words about semantics. I, I don't like uh, the phrase traditional donors, especially when, we, when we're talking uh, about a lender. We're not a donor, we're a lender. And, and it, is, it, it goes beyond semantics because the sort of things like uh, ownership, demand, uh, are dealt very differently when you're lending than what you do when you're providing grants, number one. So traditional donors, uh, in my view, belongs to uh, history. The, the subject is, is no longer uh, about uh, ODA, the sort of thing. The subject is um, proper uh, development finance. And this might include uh, traditional ODA, whatever this is needed, but increasingly it will be about uh, development finance uh, provided to uh, support sustainable goals or sustainable national strategies and so on. And in this context, there is scope uh, for lots of institutions. What, what Sufip uh, has demonstrated is that in this context, the role of uh, national regional development bank much more important than the, the role of any donor, simply because of the issue of size, which I mentioned. Uh, if you want to have an impact um, in uh, a country like India or a country like Indonesia, it is much more, much more, much important uh, financial impact uh, to, for instance, work with the State Bank of India or the PTSMI in, in uh, Indonesia because the capillarity of these institutions will guarantee that we'll, they will reach out to a, a fairly large number of clients or partners or whatever. Uh, that, that's number one. And that leads me to my second point. Um, I don't know which, to answer your questions, which would be the preferred sectors for the sort of uh, things that you've mentioned. But I would tend to assume that rather than working on sectors, it would be better to work on actors. For instance, uh, working more closely with um, uh, India Exim, uh, for, a, for an agency like IFD, a country like France, uh, seems to be a, a more interesting avenue for future cooperation, including trilateral cooperation, that defining uh, ex ante a sector in which then you might find it difficult to uh, make coincide the demand of the of the country, your own interest and interest of, of, of the third partner of the of the equation. And third point, uh, let's again start from from the demand. The example which I gave about national parks is is in my view a good example. There there is an interest in in uh, national parks uh, management in Assam. There is a similar interest in in, in Kenya. And, and the French National Forestry Administration uh, is playing a role to, to make this happen. If I could just add to that, um, and since you're from the British High Commission, you've already got a fantastic trade commissioner, Alan, you know, who's also the Deputy High Commissioner to Maharashtra and the Western Zone. Uh, we've always been working on, you know, for the past six or seven years, we've been working very closely with him, and he was in the British Council earlier, and now as the Deputy High Commissioner, there are sectors you know, like he said, could be divided into actors or sectors. And uh, what I really find very interesting, especially with India's connection to, you know, the Commonwealth and, you know, Britain, is also that we have a lot of countries as a part of the Commonwealth, apart from the Indo-Pacific, in, in a larger part of Commonwealth, where we have a shared past and maybe culturally similar or extremely different. 
but as the world we have a shared future. And there are sectors where maybe traditional donors or traditional lenders, but I think the sectors and actors that you need to probably invest in or lend to is non-traditional. We need to look at uh, the newer world ahead. Um, in terms of the lending that's been happening, in terms of you know whatever, be it infrastructure, be it roads, highways, airports, I think going beyond that, if you're looking at lending or you know uh, anything in terms of exchange, it's just beyond investment of finance. I could be thinking of investment as ideas or technology transfer. Um, working on SDGs is very, very important in terms of a larger perspective of the world. So I think that is one, uh, be it malnutrition, oral hygiene, uh, women healthcare, healthcare at large, uh, Pandemic work, non-pandemic work, COVID, non-COVID, preventive healthcare, curative healthcare, that is one. But I think what is also very important, and when we look at the world, especially the Indo-Pacific, or just a global perspective, uh, clean drinking water, clean, firm, renewable sources of energy, uh, green cement, green steel, um, cities and built environment. I think these are some of the ideas that we can really work on together in terms of investment as finance or non-finance. Because you know today's world also needs a lot of ideation, thought process, reviewing each other, peer reviews, as you know you mentioned for the EU. I think if we can do that at a global level, that is something that's really going to take us ahead as the human race, because otherwise we're running out of time and hitting our goals on paper as SDGs 2030. Are we really achieving that? May not be at the current speed. Uh, decarbonizing by 2040, are we doing that? May not be at the current speed. So if we can keep our ambitions high and move on that, I think that could be really helpful for, for all of us. If I may quickly, if I may quickly react also to to to, to this question, because uh, a triangular cooperation has been quite uh, it's, it has been quite a tradition in our in our cooperation system. We we in Spain we have more more of a focus on Latin America. Traditionally, we've worked quite a lot over there, and and it's also a very diverse reality. As I was saying before, the Indo-Pacific countries are very different, very diverse. We have to adapt our means to different environments. It does also happen in Latin America, where you have aid recipients, but also aid providers or uh, development providers. And we have worked quite, we have quite a lot of experience actually in working with countries in the region, either with Chile in Bolivia or with Mexico in Central America. It, it does help to exchange experiences and to learn. But maybe what I wanted to, to, to also to introduce here, as I think as Philip was saying, the actors are important. In that sense, uh, when we think of triangular projects, I mean, we can also think of triangular projects in the private sector. We have experience with other Asian partners in Asia, actually, or in Latin America, a lot with Japan, actually, in the case of Spain. Or we can think, and I think it's important that we also think of decentralized cooperation. And in that sense, the participation of uh, regional actors or even municipalities in cooperation projects that are close to the ground, that have the experience, also can enrich, basically, the exchange of experiences that I was mentioning before. Thank you. Do we have any more questions? Yes. Just a very quick question to our Spanish uh, colleague. Uh, if I heard you correctly, you said that the best development policy today is to stop the Ukraine war. By that, uh, you do not imply that uh, EU or Spain's development cooperation will have to wait for that moment, do you? Well, I hope not. Uh, but as I said before, I think what I hope is that the world doesn't last. Uh, what I'm implying right now is that a lot of the, or what I was implying before, is that uh, uh, the scenario that was relatively positive in the, in the beginning of the year right now looks much more challenging. 
and that the war in Ukraine is definitely introducing factors that are having a, a, a very profound impact in, 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 the, in the global south also. Um, what we, what, what I think, I think is different scenarios, but I think what, what, what we hope is that the war will, at least the hostilities will stop. It does create a very, a, a very dangerous precedent of the international order. What we're having here is, is, a, is a gross violation of, uh, of the rules-based system that has been governing uh, our lives in the, in the last few years. Uh, a system that I think is open to reform, but not by force. Uh, when we were talking before, you were talking about the situation of African countries, I, I, I don't think that we have to, to view this conflict as a conflict between Russia and the West. It has nothing, it's, it's not that. It's a conflict, it's an assault on the rules-based order that we all share. When we think of sovereignty, of territorial integrity, those are principles that most countries, um, basically all countries do share. The fact that we settle our disputes peacefully are elements that are, base, are a basis in order to, to achieve international growth and development too. So it's a precondition to a certain extent. That doesn't mean that we don't have to work also on, um, on development cooperation issues, and we are not doing that. Actually, I was mentioning before, we are in a, with this happened in the middle of the process of reform of the Spanish state cooperation system with a new law, and that law was sent to Parliament a couple of weeks ago, so we are not stopping those things. I want to bring in Oduak and Melinda for the last word. Uh, Oduak, specifically for you, I know you want to also uh, come in on one of, of what we're discussing, but uh, you have worked on gender, and uh, this report uh, talks about building of gender equity and sustainable development and how uh, we cannot look at resilience of communities without really building the resilience of women after the pandemic. So um, how, can we, how can we achieve that through, um, through the Indo-Pacific framework? Um, I actually haven't worked on gender. I'm a journalist, a recovering one. Um, but specifically to, I think my response to your question and to the question of the South-South um, cooperation, which is an important one, um, is uh, the same, which is that in the way that we design our interventions, our support, our partnerships, we can build these things in um, as a requirement. And so if you are issuing a grant as the FCDO, you can require South-South um, cooperation, meaning that Aditya has to cooperate with me. I have to cooperate with Aditya. Um, you have existing models, whether it's twinning of cities and various other um, um, formats. You can mandate that um, we cooperate. And it's not, and, and we do, um, sometimes, you know, um, chafe at, you know, impositions, particularly from, you know, Western countries, you know, people of a lighter hue. But I think that we've got to um, sometimes, uh, you know, we need a little bit more encouragement. Aditya talked about the Commonwealth. Um, and so those ex exchanges typically take place in a top-down manner. Um, they take, we, you know, we, we, you know, we, you know, summon ourselves and take ourselves to London. Um, and I think for institutions like the Commonwealth and others, you know, de devolving them to the various regions. Okay, you know, the Commonwealth Summit is devolved to the various countries of the um, common of, of the Commonwealth, but devolving um, the engagements, the the, the partnerships to. Um, you know, member countries in the same way that um, you've talked about your cooperation with Latin America. And so building um, interventions that require um, um, lateral um, collaboration as opposed to, 
um, you know, top-down or, you know, European or Western-centered, co you know, cooperation with countries in the global south, I think, would be key. And the same um, around uh, gender equity. And we've seen that, particularly in the aftermath of the pandemic. We know, uh, certainly, you know, within our context on the continent, um, girls, you know, were unable to access education, which put them at risk of early um, pregnancies, women and girls subjected to sexual violence. Um, we know that because women typically earn less um, uh, than men, that they had no access to um, income and, and, and all the uh, um, necessities that were required. And so, again, building this into you know, our Build Back Better initiatives is, is, is key. Um, there's got to be some sort of sensitization. I don't believe that if, and we see, you know, a, re a spike in China. I don't believe that if we went into another phase, I, I, I'm, I'm, perhaps I'm cynical, but I don't believe that we've done enough harvesting of lessons from this experience to ensure that if we went into another pandemic within a year or two, that we will be able to implement the lessons we've learned from our experiences. Melinda, Thank would you. you like to come in? Thank you. Um, so I wanted to approach the question from a slightly different angle, actually, which is to say that I, th I think the, the biggest challenge here is how we pull in investment capital alongside public finance and all the other means in order to achieve resilient economies, healthy populations, healthy planet. It is not how do we establish sort of you know, innovative cooperation for cooperation in itself. And for all the reasons I think that have been really eloquently put on that, pan uh, expressed in this panel, um, it is a different way of looking at the challenge. It means we need a range of actors we need public and private finance to work alongside each other through mechanisms that need to be innovative, speedy, at pace, bring the best ideas to the table, um, and it needs ingenuity. And I just think if we can reframe the traditional development narrative into something which feels more relevant for a rapidly changing world where we have brilliant ideas but significant investment need, and think about how we pull capital to where it's most needed in order to propel progress. That is a better way of looking at the challenge. By all means, we need to build on the lessons of the past, understand the inequalities, think really deep and hard about what is driving inequality and the deep features we see in our system as a result of that. But it isn't the solution simply to stare at those things. The solution is to spur progress through making sure that the, the sort of the, the global capital and financial system um, is doing the best job it possibly can. Thank you. And uh, the last word uh, to Philip. Um, we just heard about, uh, well, actually Melinda just talked about there are brilliant ideas and uh, what we need is more innovation. Uh, we've heard so much from our panelists today. Um, how would you conclude this conversation? Um, I think... Um by way of conclusion, I would, I would uh, suggest that um, the pandemic, the response to uh, climate challenges and the need to ensure proper mobilization of financial resources and, and innovations, are all of them uh, calls for a better, um, far forward-looking public policies. We, we're living... Uh, an age of rehabilitation of public policies, 
after decades of uh, um, uh, how should I blindness about the, the capacity of, of the markets to, to do everything that, that the planet was needed. So our times are times uh, during which um, public policies are being rehabilitated. Uh, they can draw upon new instruments, uh, technologies, and, and so on to make them turn them more efficient. But fundamentally, which, what we need are global public policies. Thank you. Uh, with that, we come to the conclusion of this event. I do urge the audience to uh, please see this report. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to our panelists. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.